0: Our treatment through the Lord's prayer. prayer, we come to the second petition, Thy Kingdom Come, this morning. And we read from Luke chapter 17. So we turn for our scripture reading to Luke 17, and we read that chapter in connection with our treatment of the petition, Thy Kingdom Come. We hear the inspired, infallible Word of God. Then said he unto the disciples, It is impossible, but that offenses will come. But woe unto him through whom they come. For it were better for him that a millstone were hanged about his neck, and he cast into the sea, than that he should offend one of these little ones. Take heed to yourselves. If thy brother trespass against thee, rebuke him. And if he repent, forgive him. And if he trespass against thee seven times in a day, and seven times in a day, turn again to thee, saying, I repent, thou shalt forgive him. And the apostles said unto the Lord, Increase our faith. And the Lord said, If ye had faith as a grain of mustard seed, ye might say unto this sycamine tree, Be thou plucked up by the root, and be thou planted in the sea, and it should obey you. But which of you, having a servant plowing or feeding cattle, will say unto him by and by, when he is come from the field, Go and sit down to meet, and will not rather say unto him, Make ready wherewith I may sup, and gird thyself, and serve me, till I have eaten and drunken, and afterward thou shalt eat and drink? Doth he thank that servant, because he did the things that were commanded him? I trow not. So likewise ye, when ye shall have done all those things which are commanded you, say, We are unprofitable servants. We have done that which was our duty to do. And it came to pass, as he went to Jerusalem, that he passed through the midst of Samaria and Galilee. And as he entered into a certain village, there met him ten men that were lepers, which stood afar off. And they lifted up their voices and said, Jesus, Master, have mercy on us. And when he saw them, he said unto them, Go, show yourselves unto the priests. And it came to pass that as they went, they were cleansed. And one of them, when he saw that he was healed, turned back, and with a loud voice glorified God, and fell down on his face at his feet, giving him thanks. And he was a Samaritan. And Jesus answering said, Were there not ten cleansed? But where are the nine? They are not found that returned to give glory to God, save this stranger. And he said unto him, Arise, go thy way, thy faith hath made thee whole. And when he was demanded of the Pharisees when the kingdom of God should come, he answered them and said, The kingdom of God cometh not with observation. Neither shall they say, Lo here or lo there, for behold, the kingdom of God is within you. And he said unto his disciples, The days will come, when ye shall desire to see one of the days of the Son of Man, and ye shall not see it. And they shall say to you, See here, or see there, go not after them, nor follow them. For as the lightning that lighteth out of the one part under heaven shineth unto other part under heaven, so also shall the Son of Man be in his day. But first he must suffer many things, And be rejected of this generation. And as it was in the days of Noah, so shall it be also in the days of the Son of Man. They did eat, they drank, they married wives, they were given in marriage, until the day that Noah entered into the ark, and the flood came and destroyed them all. Likewise also, as it was in the days of Lot, they did eat, they drank, they bought, they sold, they planted, they builded. But the same day that Lot went out of Sodom, it rained fire and brimstone from heaven. And destroyed them all. Even thus shall it be in the day when the Son of Man is revealed. In that day he which shall be upon the housetop and his stuff in the house, let him not come down to take it away. And he that is in the field, let him likewise not return back. Remember Lot's wife. Whosoever shall seek to save his life shall lose it, and whosoever shall lose his life shall preserve it. I tell you in that night, there shall be two men in one bed. The one shall be taken, the other shall be left. Two women shall be grinding together. The one shall be taken and the other left. Two men shall be in the field. The one shall be taken and the other left. And they answered and said unto him, Where, Lord? And he said unto them, Wheresoever the body is, thither will the eagles be gathered together. We read God's word that far. May God bless his word to our hearts. As I stated, we read this in connection with our treatment of Lord's Day 48, question and answer 123. It's found in the back of our Psalters on page 26. Question 123, which is the second petition, thy kingdom come? That is, rule us so by thy word and spirit that we may submit ourselves more and more to thee, preserve and increase thy church, destroy the works of the devil and all violence which would exalt itself against thee and also all wicked counsels devised against thy holy word till the full perfection of thy kingdom take place wherein thou shalt be all in all. Beloved of our Lord Jesus Christ, Jehovah God is become our King and our Lord by a wonder of grace. He is our King and Lord by virtue of creation, but through Jesus Christ, we confess that he's our Father who is in heaven. And as our Father, he's the one who embraces and cares for us, he's the one that upholds us. And he works in us the grace to bow before his heavenly majesty and to acknowledge him as Lord and King of all. We've been taken and brought into that glorious kingdom. And we express that in the prayer that our Lord Jesus Christ taught us. Now the concept of the kingdom has been hotly disputed through the ages. And especially in the last hundred years or so, the concept has been developed of eschatology within the churches, and in the church world. A lot of it centers around the thousand-year period in Revelation 20, which is often identified as the millennium. And at issue is just what is the nature of that millennium, that thousand-year reign? Some say, the premillennialists, that Jesus is going to come back in two different time periods. First, he's going to come secretly with a rapture, and they try to use the last verses of this chapter as proof of that, where we read that there are two and then all of a sudden one is taken. And after that rapture then, there will be a thousand year reign in Jerusalem among the Jews. And then Jesus will come again after that time to usher his church into the glory that awaits. Pre-millennial, referring to the fact that Jesus comes before the millennial period, the thousand years, an earthly reign in Jerusalem among the Jews, they insist. Then there is the post-millennial era, which has overtaken many of Reformed and Presbyterian churches of our day, emphasizing that Jesus is going to come post, that is after that thousand-year period. And again, referring it to a literal thousand-year period that takes place on earth in an earthly kingdom, and their sentiment is this, that the world is going to get better and better to the point where Christianity is going to rule, and there will be this thousand-year reign of peace then of the Christians on earth, after which then Jesus will come, post-millennial. His return will be after that thousand-year period of time. Over against both of those errors, we hold to what we call That that is, It's not a literal time period. It's not a literal 1,000-year period. We would insist that the time period of the millennium would be the time from Jesus' ascension into heaven till just prior to his final return. And during that figurative time period then, we are now engaged in that which is spoken of concerning what will take place during that time period. And so it's a spiritual reign of Christ. It has to do with not a earthly, but a spiritual wonder. And we would answer then the premillennialists in terms of these last verses of the chapter that that's not something that's referring to some kind of secret coming of Christ, but that those events are taking place at the end of the world. When Jesus comes in all of his majesty and all of his glory, then he's going to take the people of God off the earth. Just briefly, prior to then, the final battle of Armageddon taking place and the destruction that will take place here below. Nowhere in the Bible do we read of two separate returns of Jesus. Nowhere in the Bible do we read of a secret, private, quiet return. Jesus comes loudly. He comes with majesty in such a way that all are able to see and be able to witness his return. That confession requires of us, what do we think about the kingdom? What is our perspective regarding the kingdom? Do we view the kingdom as earthly, as do the premillennialists and the postmillennialists? Or do we view that kingdom as a spiritual kingdom? We read here in Luke 17, Jesus insisting that this kingdom is a spiritual kingdom. And then we ask these questions, how is the kingdom related to the covenant? We embrace the covenant as an unconditional covenant established by God of grace. How does that pertain to the covenant, to the kingdom, and our understanding of the kingdom? Where the covenant is portrayed as a conditional covenant that is breakable, often in that instance then, the kingdom is often spoken of also as an earthly kingdom then. That is but temporary. But where the covenant is confessed as an unconditional covenant that is unbreakable, established by God of grace, then we also understand in connection with that, the kingdom must be a spiritual kingdom. It must be an everlasting kingdom. And we understand then the implication of our view of the covenant in connection with the right understanding of the kingdom. This we pray for, thy kingdom come. And so we looked this morning at the content of that prayer, thy kingdom come, noting the kingdom first of all, the development of that kingdom, it's coming, and then finally the goal that is expressed especially here in Lord's Day 48. So rule us, we read in this Lord's Day. A kingdom consists of people who are under a king, have a constitution of some sort, laws of some kind, And the king then dictates the nature of those citizens and the nature of the kingdom. And generally, a king would establish that kingdom by power and by might. We're talking here of a kingdom of which God is the king. And God, as the king of this kingdom, rules over all of hell. He rules over all of heaven. He rules over all of creation. He rules over every single aspect of this world. There is no place that's outside of his control. There's no creature, there's no devil, there's no demon that is not subject to Jehovah God as ruler and king. Now, whether willingly or against their will, they all will subject themselves to him as Lord. His kingdom is a powerful kingdom. It's a kingdom of power, a kingdom of dominion. It's constant in that way all through history. But now here, we're talking in this petition of a different, sense we have in the foreground with this prayer a kingdom that comes this means that the kingdom for which we pray is a specific kingdom something that has to do with development jehovah god established this kingdom in time from eternity he's the one who in time establishes it it's an aspect of his grace but there's yet development that's taking place with regard to this kingdom And so we're not talking about the kingdom of God's sovereign, might, and power, we're talking about a kingdom of grace. This is a kingdom that is coming in the hearts and the lives of God's children. God's children whom God chose from all eternity, in time, He worked the wonder of salvation in their hearts through the Holy Spirit, and now in them, God is translating them in order that they might be prepared for a glorious spiritual heavenly kingdom. Jesus Christ preparing us, as well as preparing a place where he's going to take the whole of his elect body into the glory of that marvelous kingdom. These citizens have the law written on their hearts as the constitution of the kingdom, and these citizens confess that the kingdom is not an outward, it's not an earthly kingdom, It's a kingdom that is within me. That's the beautiful confession that Jesus makes here in verse 21. For behold, the kingdom of God is within you. What a wonder. Jehovah God has worked a wonder by which that kingdom is found, not in earthly institutions, in might and power, it's found in the hearts of his children. The fruit of that is that We confess God as our king. We're not threatened into obedience. Lovingly, we obey him. We delight in him. We serve him as those who confess that this God is our father. He loves us and he cares for us. And now as citizens of his kingdom, we delight in his rule and his reign. We're not threatened by the king. We're not living in fear as many citizens are of various kingdoms we're experiencing a relationship of love within that kingdom. And we delight to do the will of our Heavenly Father. Now, beloved, you know the history of this kingdom. Adam and Eve originally were created good, upright. They loved God. They lived in fellowship and communion with God. But then they fell into sin. They cut themselves off from God. They became devoted to the devil. Satan was the enemy of God, the chief of the fallen angels, who now sought to take the whole of the creation as well as mankind whom God had created and to now enlist them into his service as part of his evil kingdom. A lot of different names are given to Satan in the Bible that express those evil desires. He's called the prince of this world, in John 14, verse 30. He's called the prince of the air in Ephesians 2, verse 2. Luke 11, verse 21 identifies him as a strong man. Hebrews 2, verse 14, that he's the power of death. 2 Corinthians 4, 4, that he's the God of this world. All of these characterizing this one who's trying to take the whole of the world that God created and the whole of mankind and now bring them down to destruction in an evil kingdom that is characterized by sin, death, and hell. But God had not ordained that to take place. God ordained that in the way of sin, grace would be evident. And God ordained that as the Lord of heaven and earth, he would establish his kingdom in his wisdom, in his loving kindness, in a manner that would defy all human understanding. From all eternity, God determined that he would save to himself a people whom he would elect, whom he would choose, and he would bring them into a kingdom from which they could never fall, a kingdom in which they would be preserved and kept to all eternity, a kingdom that would never cease. And that kingdom would consist of voluntary, loving obedience and delight. How would he do that? He would do that through Jesus Christ and through the wonder of what Jesus accomplished on Calvary. Jesus came and he suffered and he died to pay the price that the citizens of God's kingdom owed the elect. And now, by virtue of his perfect work, they are incorporated into the kingdom of God's dear Son. Ordinarily, kingdoms established by fighting and battle and overcoming and showing might. Jesus establishing this kingdom through death. His death being the means by which he bought those who had cast themselves headlong into the service of the devil. He paid the price they owed. He bought them as his own precious children and now incorporates them into the kingdom that is everlasting and glorious. That's the wonder, beloved, of our salvation, that Jehovah God saw fit to work in us who were dead the wonder of life that's from above and to take us into this glorious kingdom into which we serve righteousness, in which now God's law is written on our hearts and we delight in and we serve him with joy and with thanksgiving. The only possibility, Jesus Christ and the wonder of his love and his care for his church. By faith we lay hold on that wonder. And by faith we believe that through Jesus Christ we have been reconciled with the living God. Through Jesus Christ we have been taken into the glorious wonder of a kingdom that is everlasting and that is eternal. And Jesus as prophet, priest, and king works that wonder in our hearts. As prophet, he's teaching us regarding the nature and the life of that kingdom. As a priest, he's the one reconciling us to his heavenly father. And as king, he's ruling in us in order that we overcome and fight and tear down the strongholds of the devil in our own lives. That sin be banished and cast out and that we be made willing servants of Jehovah God. Until finally, at death, we become fully incorporated into the glory and wonder of that eternal bliss. Now various names are given to this kingdom and we want to trace a few of those names just to give us an insight again into the nature of this kingdom. The Bible often calls it, for instance, the kingdom of God. Very clear and evident. This is a kingdom established and maintained by Jehovah God alone. It's called the kingdom of Christ. Again, we understand the significance of that. Jesus is the one who establishes this kingdom. He's the one who by his cross and by his perfect obedience and death bought the citizens of this kingdom and paid the price that they owed. If there's no cross, there can be no kingdom of God's grace. Through Jesus Christ, we've been incorporated into that kingdom. He established the right. He's the one who established the foundation of that kingdom in righteousness, and he's the one who works it by his spirit in the hearts of his children. So that the Holy Spirit, by the wonder of regeneration now, gives new life to God's people. And by virtue of that new life, the Spirit now gives us to know that we are citizens of that glorious kingdom. God is our Father. We have been translated into the kingdom of His dear Son, and we're able to know the wonder and the joy of that life and that citizenship. But it's also called the kingdom of heaven, and we want to focus a little bit longer on that name that's given to this kingdom. The kingdom of heaven. That destroys all of the conceptions of the premillennialists and the postmillennialists who seek to make this kingdom an earthly kingdom. This kingdom is not earthly, it's spiritual, it's heavenly. It's a kingdom that's established by God in Jesus Christ in the hearts and lives of his children. Now, during the time of Jesus, this was a struggle. The Jews expected an earthly kingdom. They longed for an earthly kingdom. They were looking for a kingdom that would be earthly. This continues, in our day, to be a struggle among the church world. We can understand how unbelievers would labor for an earthly kingdom. We understand how evolutionists would labor for an earthly kingdom. Those who are into ecology and who talk about nature and mother nature and the idea of preserving this world and maintaining this world are laboring for an earthly kingdom. But tragically, the church world has joined with these ungodly men. And the church world says, we're going to adopt those same goals. We're going to labor toward those same ends. Our desire also is that the kingdom be an earthly kingdom. And so what does the church do? She makes her preaching all about social matters. Now the emphasis of the church has to do with eradicating poverty, eliminating racism, Making it so that this world can be more prosperous for all men and trying to make this world a better place. And teaching then that Jesus died, but by his death, he didn't establish the kingdom. That responsibility falls on Christians. And it's the responsibility of Christians now, busy in this world, to bring all the aspects of this world under the domain of Jesus Christ and to ultimately establish then a kingdom on earth where Christian principles are going to rule. The Bible condemns that perspective of the kingdom. What was Jesus' repeated refrain? The kingdom is not one that can be inhabited by flesh and blood. This is a spiritual kingdom. And also, again, this is the emphasis of Jesus here in verses 21 and 22. Neither shall they say, lo, here, or lo, there. For behold, the kingdom of God is within you. The kingdom of God is is within us in verse 20 the pharisees demanded of him when the kingdom of god should come and he answered them and said the kingdom of god cometh not with observation that is the kingdom is not coming with earthly works that can be seen from an earthly perspective and then we can say hey this is evidence that the kingdom now is coming again they're expecting an earthly kingdom It's interesting that the 31 times that I found the kingdom of heaven noted in the Bible were all in the book of Matthew. Now if we think about that for a moment, why did God ordain the writing of the gospel according to Matthew? What was Matthew's unique perspective? Matthew's unique perspective was the Jews. He was writing to the Jews and his desire was to say to the Jews that Jesus is the promised Messiah. And therefore, you children know that as you read through the book of Matthew again and again, you read as it is written, as it is written, so that Jesus is, so that Matthew is demonstrating by the inspiration of the Spirit that Jesus is nothing new, but Jesus had been spoken of in the Old Testament. And Jesus now is the fulfillment of all of those Old Testament prophecies. He is the Messiah that has now come down from God to heaven. In essence, what Matthew is doing over 31 times is saying to the Jews, no, the kingdom is not earthly. The kingdom of heaven. Other of the gospel narratives say the kingdom of God, the kingdom of God, or the kingdom of Jesus Christ, the kingdom of Jesus Christ. Matthew says, no, it's the kingdom of heaven. This is not an earthly kingdom. This is a heavenly kingdom. This is not a kingdom that can be seen with earthly eyes. It's not a kingdom that men establish or that is accomplished by the works and the progress of men. This is a kingdom that Jehovah God is establishing that flesh and blood can't inhabit, but rather it's a spiritual kingdom. Now it's true there is a sense in which this kingdom has an observable scent, an observable aspect to it, but it's spiritually, not physical again. Jesus' point here is that the kingdom of god cometh not with observation it doesn't come the way the pharisees were expecting it doesn't come the way that ordinary earthly kings kingdoms come this kingdom comes through the death of jesus christ the resurrection of jesus christ the ascension of jesus christ and the pouring out of his spirit in the hearts of his children (laughs) The Antichrist kingdom, that comes by observation. That comes according to watching and seeing the developments among mankind and on earth. But God's kingdom, as the kingdom of heaven, comes as a spiritual wonder. Another incident that stresses this, which is in the next chapter that we didn't have time to read, but in Luke 18, we have the incident of the rich young ruler. The rich young ruler, as you recall, he wanted to do something for the kingdom of God. Here was a rich man. He had much in terms of means. He could have used that wealth in a marvelous way to promote different things of the kingdom. And what does Jesus say in essence to the man? Jesus says, your money, your wealth, no, it's no good for this kingdom. Sell all that thou hast and give to the poor. That wealth cannot be used to make this kingdom more beautiful. That wealth is not helpful for a kingdom, especially as he was thinking, he was thinking of an earthly kingdom. Now, if Jesus' kingdom was earthly, that wealth would have been very helpful, and Jesus could have used that wealth in some way to establish and to build that kingdom. Jesus says, no, it's of no use in my kingdom. This is a spiritual, heavenly kingdom. Now, also we look at this. What is the relationship, then, between this kingdom and the covenant? Those are two distinct, yet very closely related concepts. The kingdom refers to the structure, it refers to the government, it refers to the laws, the customs, the language, whereas the covenant refers to the relationships that are found within that kingdom structure. So that the kingdom involves development, there's a history of the kingdom, there's a line that can be followed. Whereas the covenant is a relationship of living fellowship and friendship that God establishes with his church. God has not only taken his people and made them citizens of this glorious kingdom, but he's made them his own. He's made them his children and he's brought them into his family. And so we understand then the kingdom is necessary as the outward structure for the preservation and promotion of the life of that covenant. The same individuals are part of the kingdom and the covenant. They're God's elect whom God has chosen from all eternity and whom God then, in time, brings into the enjoyment and the wonder of that salvation. The goal of the covenant and the kingdom are the same, the glory of God. But the kingdom is the structure, the covenant would be understood as the life within that kingdom. We can understand that within the church. It's important that as a church of Jesus Christ, we have structure, we have church order, we have office bearers, We have that order that's necessary so that then the church can experience a wonderful life and a vibrant life that takes place. If you take away the structure, that life is going to be affected, and the vibrancy of that life will quickly diminish. Think of our homes, how important it is within our homes to have structure, how important it is for our children to have rules clearly that lay out what they are allowed to do, what they are not. And children flourish, and they thrive within that structure. Take away the structure, there's chaos, and there's no joy, there's no happiness, there's not the blessedness of the relationship. God establishes the structure of the kingdom to enhance the communion of the covenant. And the view that we have then of the kingdom is going to dictate our understanding of the covenant, and vice versa. If we believe that the kingdom is an eternal kingdom that is established by God in Jesus Christ, and we understand it as a king as a kingdom that's spiritual, then we also understand the covenant to be a covenant, then, that is spiritual, that involves life, that is unconditional, that can't be broken, a covenant that is established by God, maintained by God, and preserved by God. However, if you view view the kingdom as earthly, an earthly kingdom that is just temporary for a time, then one understands one's view of the covenant quickly would be then too that. The covenant then is conditional. The covenant just serves an end, but it doesn't have a life that is of itself everlasting. Those who understand and embrace the idea of a covenant of works with Adam are going to often, if not for the most part, also understand then the covenant to be that which was just temporary. And it wasn't something that had to do with the joy of communion and fellowship with the living God. Not an unconditional, blessed relationship that God expresses in love. Beloved, God's covenant is far more glorious than anything that this world has to offer. And God's kingdom is far more glorious than any other kingdom of this world. And you children are aware of that. Remember in the book of Daniel how this kingdom was described. That there was a little stone that was broken without hands out of the mountain. And that was Jesus. And then what happened? It grew and it filled the whole world and destroyed all of the kingdoms of men. This kingdom is a glorious kingdom. This kingdom is a kingdom that is from everlasting and which will endure to all everlasting. And we pray now for that kingdom to come. What does that mean? Thy kingdom come. We confess that there's a development that takes takes place here. The catechism puts it this way, that so rule in us by thy word and spirit that we submit ourselves more and more unto thee. We pray this petition, thy kingdom come, with the understanding what we need as citizens of this kingdom. We believe that God has taken us and made us citizens of this kingdom. As citizens of this glorious kingdom, we understand that this is the most important citizenship that we have. We're thankful to be citizens of America, thankful to live in this country, but we understand that this is not our goal. This will not be our end. We participate in the government. We try to see to it that conservative laws are maintained and preserved. But at the same time, we realize that our goal is not to live here in this country forever. Getting to be a Christian nation is not our goal with regard to America. We vote. We do what we can again to have an influence. But we realize we're not going to live here on earth forever. And that's not our desire. But God has given us to be part of a kingdom that is everlasting a kingdom that is eternal, a kingdom that defies all of the struggles and all of the challenges that we experience in our earthly life. This kingdom is such that our prayer is, so rule us. Because we realize the greatest threat to this kingdom is my own nature. The greatest threat to this kingdom, true, is the devil and the wicked world around me and my own sinful nature. And my prayer then is that God so work in me that I submit myself more and more to him. Notice how personal the catechism makes this petition. We pray thy kingdom come. We're not praying for something to happen out there. We're praying about something within us and the wonder of God's spirit at work in our hearts. And our concern is that that kingdom come to a greater expression in my life. That the throne of Jesus established in my heart be increasingly evident that God's law written in my heart becomes more and more obvious from the way in which I live and how I conduct myself, that what Jesus says here is true, for behold, the kingdom of God is within you, that increasingly I'm living in such a way that I am acknowledging him as king, I'm walking in obedience, I'm showing thankfulness, I'm living in submission to his will, I'm seeking his kingdom and righteousness above all. I'm not in the pursuit of the things that perish. I'm not in the pursuit of earthly fame and glory and honor and possessions. I realize this is all going to be taken away. When I die, I can't take any of it with me. But my heart needs to live for God and for his glory and the pursuit of that kingdom that is everlasting and eternal. That God worked in me increasingly that single-hearted purpose, that for me to live as Christ and therefore to die is gain. That God gives me that desire. One thing have I desired, and that I seek after, that I may dwell in the house of God forever. That's the prayer, the petition. I look at myself, and I realize how often I'm living for my own little kingdom. I'm living for myself. I'm pursuing the things that are here below. And I'm brought to my knees and, shame. My first concern must not be myself, my own name, my own reputation. My concern is to live for God, for his glory, and to live in the pursuit of that kingdom that is everlasting. And the glory of that kingdom will be evident in the lives of God's children. This is God's work. This is the wonder of his spirit, and he will produce the works that glorify and honor him. And he will enable his children to live in such a way that they bring honor. They bring praise to the one who is King and Lord. Concerned about ourselves, but then also about Christ's church, as she's found here on earth. Realizing how the devil is waging a fierce battle and war against her. Preserve and increase thy church. Destroy the works of the devil and all violence which would exalt itself against thee. The church is precious to us. We love Christ church. And as living members of Christ's church, we love the saints. And we pray then for the saints, that God will keep them from the devil, that he will keep them from the influence of the devil. Every citizen needs our prayers in the midst of that spiritual battle. That Jesus Christ, who has anointed us as prophet, priest, and king in him, would strengthen us as kings to fight that fight against sin. We pray this petition and we pray then that God will cause the children of the church to lay hold on the truth, to love the truth, that God will work in us to fight and do battle against the power of sin within us, to confess that sin, to be willing to say I'm sorry, acknowledge that sin against the living God, and to know the comfort and the forgiveness that is in Jesus Christ alone. That God will preserve the marriages of the church, that God will preserve the youth of the church, that God will keep us faithful to him in order that we might live faithfully as citizens of his glorious kingdom, that God will cause that church to be gathered and to be preserved and to flourish throughout the world unto the coming of our Lord and Savior at the end. Now the devil is intent on destroying Christ's church and the devil is at work and we know it, we see it in our own lives, we see it in the church. He has the world, He doesn't have to work on them, but he goes after the saints and he goes after the church and he comes at us with intense hatred, but he will not prevail because Jehovah God is king of this kingdom, but he strikes at the church. He strikes at the people of God. He can't get at God, so he tries to get at the people of God and our prayer is thy kingdom come. Jehovah God, preserve and keep thy church over against the attacks of the devil, against his wicked hosts that prevail at times against us. And give us the grace to stand and to withstand and to press on as those who know that our strength is not in self. Our strength is in his word and by the power of his spirit. The catechism elaborates all counsels devised against thy holy word. That's especially the objects of the devil's hatred, the word of God. If he can get there to be a famine of the word, he will have his way. And so the devil is constantly trying to get at the truth of God's word. If he can get men to believe that the Bible is full of lies, that the Bible is full of contradictions, then he can undermine the authority of scripture. And so how important it is that we have faithful ministers, faithful office bearers, that we don't allow our ministers to become lazy but that we maintain the truth that we don't allow the water the word to get watered down but that the preaching is faithful and that God's word is maintained and preserved in our midst the structure of the kingdom must be maintained in order that the life of the kingdom can be that joyful covenant life of communion and fellowship with the living God and what's the goal Till the full perfection of thy kingdom take place, wherein thou shalt be all in all. What a marvelous statement. God will be all in all. We think, well, already God is. He's so glorious. He's majestic. And yet, there is that which must yet take place. The full revelation of God's glory through the final return and the final judgment that will take place when Jesus comes back. This is the final goal of our prayer. Our desire is that God's glory be shown in the full perfection of his kingdom. That the wicked give all glory to God. That all men glorify and honor him. That's yet in the future. We don't put our confidence in the things here below. We put our confidence in the full realization of that kingdom as it's taking place according to God's perfect counsel. And again, remember that little stone destroying all of the kingdoms of this world and encompassing the whole of the world. That's the glorious kingdom of which we have been made citizens. We realize that we can't enter this kingdom with our current bodies. Flesh and blood will not inherit the kingdom of heaven. Our bodies need to be changed. And so we look forward to that wonder when our bodies will be transformed. When God will cause the resurrection from the dead to take place. And God will translate us into the joy of that heavenly bliss with our Lord. Now for a time, we're here below yet. God has taken some of our loved ones in their souls they are in heaven. But their bodies must be reunited to their souls. And so we long for that day. When God will send his own son in the clouds of heaven. To usher that wonder not to establish an earthly kingdom where he's going to reign in Jerusalem or anywhere else on earth, but to destroy this world with fire and to establish a new heaven and a new earth wherein his children now dwell in their spiritual bodies with him to all eternity in the glory of that new Jerusalem. Thy kingdom come. Now that's humbling, isn't it? We realize what we're praying for. We're really praying then to die. We're really praying for all of this earthly stuff to be gone, and we're looking forward to the day when God will bring us into the glory of that kingdom that awaits. We're praying that God will continue the work in the hearts of his children, that he will cause every last one of his elect children to be born, that he will work the wonder of their salvation, incorporating them as citizens of that glorious kingdom, and then will bring about that glorious day. We enjoy now the blessedness of covenant life with the living God. We enjoy the wonder of that life. But we realize that the structure, it leaves much to be desired. There's still sin. Sin is a power in our flesh. Sin is still standing between us and others. Sin is still very much at work in our lives. We realize that sin is causing life in God's kingdom as it's realized in the church here on earth, to be strained. It keeps us from living the fullness of that which would bring God glory. And so we pray, thy kingdom come. We're not content with the current situation. We desire the fullness of the glory of that kingdom. We realize too that there's a curse on the creation and that this creation must be transformed and made new. God's covenant must be, Proceed to the goal that God has ordained, God tabernacling with man, according to Revelation 21. And so, beloved, we look forward to that glorious wonder when covenant fellowship between God and us will be fully realized in the new heaven and the new earth and where we will live in that glorious kingdom to all eternity. We can't even imagine the joy. We can't imagine the blessedness of it. God says nothing that we've ever experienced here below can begin to compare. I hath not seen, hath, ear hath not heard. But for this we pray, and God works the wonder of his spirit within us. We desire the fullness of that joy. We desire that God receive all glory and all praise in the glory of that heavenly spiritual kingdom. Now, We're merely citizens of an earthly country that will be destroyed. But by God's grace, we're citizens of this glorious spiritual kingdom. And we pray then as citizens, thy kingdom come. Amen. Our Father in heaven, work in our hearts the wonder of thy grace, that more and more we might know the glory and the joy and the wonder of that citizenship, that we have a Savior who laid his life down in our place and bought us in order that we are citizens of a kingdom from which we can never be taken, a kingdom that will endure to all eternity, and a kingdom that will give all glory, all praise, all honor to the God of our salvation. Strengthen us in the pursuit of the things that are spiritual and heavenly, and grant that we might seek first the things of thy kingdom, and believe that all that we need will be added to us. This we pray for Jesus' sake. Amen.